thank you, Joanna, very much. It's great to be with everyone here. I'm in my own neighborhood. Uh, Kathy and I live uh, less than two miles from uh, the mansion and uh, on one of uh, General Washington's old farms. And so uh, it's great to be here with you this morning. We're strong supporters of the library, and uh, it's a great addition to the neighborhood. Uh, I am taking a moment off of the trail today. Uh, not going to do any campaigning here. I do want to talk with you uh, as a former top congressional aide and, and uh, uh, servant to President Bush in the West Wing as well. Glad to be with my former colleague, Secretary Gutierrez, who is one of the uh, great leaders of, uh, of our cause and of our principles. And uh, also happy to be with another former congressional aide, my wife, Kathy Gillespie, who was Joe Barton's chief of staff for a long time. We met playing uh, congressional softball together on a congressional softball team, you'll be happy to know. And uh, Kathy was uh, on the mound when I stepped up to the plate at our first practice, and uh, that was that. Love at first sight. And, uh, we've been married over 26 years now, so she could not uh, catch a sharp grounder, but I was able to catch her, and so everything went fine. <laughs> But look, I want to visit with you because this is a very important time in our history and you play a very important role. I'm a former policy and communications director and I know we have uh, legislative directors and communications directors here today. Uh, you know, the melding of that is very important for us, especially when uh, the other party has control of the, the bully pulpit at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I have been on both ends. Uh, of the avenue and uh, have been in the uh, Republican White House, obviously when Republicans had control of Congress. And I know the challenges uh, that we face, even when we control uh, one half of one third of the uh, federal government. And this is an important time for us because, uh, as Joanna mentioned, uh, we do need to talk about what we're for and our principles. And it's one of the things I'm trying to do. And we're pretty united, obviously, in what we're against. We know what's not working. We see it every day, and the American people see it every day. But what we're for takes a lot more work to bring together. And we know that our principles are what's in the best interest of the country. We can see the lousy economy that we're dealing with right now. We can see the lost jobs. We can see the lower take-home pay. We can see the higher health care costs and the higher energy prices that are really squeezing people, squeezing working Americans, and squeezing Americans, even worse, who cannot find a job in this economy. And we have to utterly reject the notion that the liberals would have the American people believe that this is the new normal. The new normal is the old mediocre, and we can do better. This is not our fate. This is a matter of poor policy decisions that have been made. And we can turn things around and make things better with the right policies. And so we know that free markets and free people we know that rolling back this excessive regulation, this government overreach, this massive debt, the excessive taxes, the mandates, we know that when we change those things and roll those things back, we will have private sector investment will be unleashed. And people will be able to have jobs. People will see their take-home pay go up and their wages rise. People will see their health care costs come down and premiums stop skyrocketing. And we'll see energy become more affordable so that hardworking people, when they put $20 on the pump, get more gas in their, in their minivan or, or their uh, car. It's important, and it matters, and it makes a difference. And right now is an exciting time. I know it's a frustrating time uh, for many folks on the Hill. I realize that. But it's also a great opportunity, because it's a chance in the policy marketplace, in the political marketplace, to come forward with new and innovative ideas, 
I'm constantly on the search for new and innovative ideas to talk about, about why our principles work, why our principles are better for the people of Virginia and all Americans. And there's a great opportunity for policy entrepreneurs, and I worked for one for a long time, Dick Armey, you may remember, uh, former House Majority Leader. And he was a policy entrepreneur, very innovative, in the minority, passed a base closing bill that's still in effect today, the BRAC, the Base Closure and Realignment Act, is still in effect today. He passed that as a second-term member in the minority. Now, I know it's harder to pass things uh, in Congress today because of the nature of the place, but there are opportunities for us here before we have a standard bearer, before the presidential cycles, for members of Congress and for all of you to come forward with some innovative ideas that can be embraced uh, at the national level. And it's an exciting moment, and I, I hope that you'll take advantage of that and your bosses will take advantage of it. I know that's partly why you're here today. Uh, and I just want to share with you why I think it matters so much and why, at this moment in time, it's so critical. Because I do believe we're at a critical moment. This president and this administration and their allies in Congress are trying to move us away, clearly, from our free market principles, to move us away from the blessings of liberty that have given us the country that we treasure and the, and the history, the proud history of the next generation doing better than the generation that came before it, the opportunities that it bestows, and we're losing those, and we can see it every day. And we have an opportunity to turn that around. Like I say, this is not our fate. This is a result of bad policy, good policy, will make things better. And we know that work is essential to our identity and to driving our economy. And to me, one of the most disconcerting things about the policies that we see from this administration and their allies in Congress is not just that they kill jobs, but that they are undermining the American work ethic. And we see it in their policies all the time, most clearly in the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. We saw the CBO study, you all are familiar with it, Two and a half million fewer jobs in our economy over the next decade as a result of the disincentives that are built into that legislation. And the White House celebrates this. The White House said this is a good thing because when people work less, when people work fewer hours, when they don't work to go from one job to the next higher job because of the penalty for making more money in that process, that's a good thing for our country and for our, our economy because, as they said, more people will be free to pursue their hobbies. That's what they said. That's their view. That we are better off as a country with more people working less and spending more time playing Candy Crush or, you know, something. I mean, it is absurd. But that's their view of the world. They think it's a great thing to increase the minimum wage and destroy half a million entry-level jobs the first rung on the economic ladder for so many Americans. Now, there are people, a very slight percentage, as we know, about 3%, who make minimum wage and are head of household. We should help those people. But we can help those people without destroying 500,000 entry-level jobs that give people the opportunity to get into the workforce, to understand and learn a lot of these people first-time entrants into the workforce, obviously, second earners in a family, teenagers, young people. Give them the opportunity to find out what it means to earn a paycheck, to get to work on time, to experience the dignity of work. And that's what's so important here. Because we understand, as conservatives and people who believe in free markets and free people, that there's not just economic value in labor. There is human dignity in work. 
And we need to make sure that more people experience that dignity. And our policies would do that. We need to promote them with vigor. And we understand that we can actually, as a country, do better from one generation to the next, that that is our history. It's so sad to think that so many Americans believe that, we've, that we're at the end of that line now and that the next generation and the generation after won't be able to do better than the generation that came before. We have to utterly reject that. And to me, it's a personal matter because of my own family history. And I just want to share with you a little bit why I feel so strongly about these issues and why I care so deeply as to you about this country and our future. Because my father came here from Ireland as a boy because his father found work here as a janitor. And my grandfather worked from 6 o'clock at night until 2 o'clock in the morning at a big bank building in Philadelphia. And he would, after the bank closed, go in and he would empty the waste baskets and he would mop the floor on the ground floor and he would work his way up that office building over an eight-hour shift to the top floor. The last thing he would do is he would polish the table, the big wooden table in the boardroom. And he'd get home around 2.45 in the morning. My parents <coughs> never went to college. Two of the smartest people I've ever known, believe me, and two of the hardest working. But they never went to college. They insisted that I go and that my brothers and sisters do the same. We were the first generation on either side of our family to go to college and get college degrees. I went to Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. I helped work my way through school as a Senate parking lot attendant. If any of the <laughs> staff are here, you see people like me in the jackets with the logo, and we would make sure that you didn't mess up the line coming in to get parked on the parking lots at 7 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock in the morning. Not always easy for a junior in college who's from a big Irish Catholic family to get there at 7 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but uh, I managed to do it. And I'm hopeful in November to become the first person I think ever to go from the Senate parking lot to the Senate floor. Um, <laughs> but I got to grow up to be the counselor to the President of the United States of America. Immigrant janitor to working in the Oval Office in the West Wing serving the leader of the free world in two generations time. What a country. What a country. But we're losing that right now as a result of these policies. And that's why what you do is so important. Because we can turn things around with the right ideas, the right positive agenda to put forward for the American people in this election and the next election. So that we can have a governing majority when we win. And we will win. But we have to have a positive agenda just like we did with the contract with America. It wasn't so long ago that with a Republican Congress and a Democratic President, we balanced the budget for the first time in 25 years. Three years running, ran a surplus, started to pay down the debt. We can do it again. It's a matter of leadership, not fate. It's a matter of policies. And we can do that. And we understand the importance of America in the world, and we see it now. We see the importance of strong leadership. And I'll share with you a story that I, I don't often tell, but I think it's very relevant right now. And that was when President Bush asked me to be counselor to the president. Now that job is sometimes confused with the role of the White House counsel, which is the president's lawyer. That was not my job, uh, which is a good thing because after I got my degree from the Catholic University of America, I felt lucky to get an undergraduate degree. I never even went to law school, so I shouldn't be the, the lawyer for the president of the United States. But 
I was uh, the counselor, and I always say that that, that position is actually probably more accurately uh, pronounced consigliere. <laughs> the advisor and someone who, you know, was by his side. It was a great honor to be there. But when he asked me to take the job, I'll always remember, he invited me up to his private office, his personal study in the residence. Beautiful room, dark wood panels, big painting of the Spanish-American War. Uh, the surrender after the Spanish-American War. And I read off the train about me, and uh, President Bush said to me, Eddie, you're very good. I had been RNC chairman, and he called me Eddie. Eddie, you're very good at communicating with the American voters, and that's an important audience, and that's an important role in this job as counselor, but you'll need to understand that the American president has more than just one audience. He said that our allies listen to everything the American president says. We were knee-deep, obviously the surge had just started, it was just starting in Iraq. We were obviously still fighting in Afghanistan as well. And he said, and if our allies detect weakness or uncertainty on the part of the American president, they'll be gone tomorrow. They will be out of there. He said, our enemies listen very carefully to what the American president says. And if they detect vacillation, lack of commitment to our cause and our purpose, they will ramp up, they will ratchet up, they'll be emboldened. He said, in the fourth audience are our troops in the field, and they listen very carefully to what their commander-in-chief says. And if they detect weakness, if they detect vacillation, uncertainty on the part of the commander-in-chief, it'll hurt their morale. He said, now there will be times when it's popular for me to say something with that first audience with the American voter but it would have the effect of hurting the morale of our troops in the field. And he leaned forward and he said, and you just need to know I will never do that. And I thought, where do I sign? Where do I sign? And that kind of certainty, that kind of resolve is important in the American president. It's important in the world, and we're missing it right now. And it's clear the effects that we see around the globe, it's not in our national security interest for the U.S. to recede from a leadership role in the world, to lead from behind, as we've been told is the approach of this administration. There's another word for leading from behind, by the way. It's following. And it does not work for the U.S. to recede in that way, and it does not make us safer as a nation. So these policies, these issues, they matter. And I know you know that. I know that's why you're here. And I just came to thank you for what you're doing, to tell you how important it is to tell you to keep that focus on positive policies and a positive agenda for our conservative principles to take forward to the American people and to offer them as, a, as an alternative uh, in this election and the next one because we can make the country again a great place where people do do better from one generation to the next. So thank you very much for letting me be with you this morning and I'm happy to take some questions, Jim Perfect. Thank you. Do we have any questions from the audience? If not, I will start it out. In, in, Ed, in, in, Eddie, isn't that crazy? <laughs> well, my, my, my former boss, as you guys may or may not know, was Mike Oxley. He called him Mikey, too. <laughs> uh, but one of the frustrations from so many folks in the House is, you know, they're constantly working to get pieces of legislation on the floor, and they get them passed, and then it just goes into this vacuous hole in the sense. When you were elected, what are some of the things that you would do to try and promote better relations with the House and, and, and moving legislation that the House has passed and getting it to the Senate? Well, thank you. And um, 
for all Virginians, by the way, uh, I mean, I will make one little plug. Go to my website, edforsenate.com. You can see some of my policies there and what I'm for. You can also click to sign up to be a delegate. Uh, but uh, I, would, I would say, you know, the most important thing is uh, in a, a positive agenda that, to me, begins with restoring this opportunity for work and for jobs. And I do believe that you know, we can work together, we can get things done, and the Senate is right now, as you all know, the, the place where good bills, bills from the House go to die. And uh, we need to have a majority there to help move those bills and get them to the President's desk. Now, he may not sign them, obviously, but they will be in a better position if we can get him bills and legislation passed. And to me, I do think that you can uh, work across the aisle. I've done it. Uh, I have many friends on the Democratic side. We don't agree on everything, but we can find some common ground and we can get some things done. Uh, and this is an important moment in our history, like I say, where I think, you know, on energy policy, uh, healthcare obviously more polarizing, I think, in some ways right now, but on energy policy and on uh, other policies that would help people who are struggling in this economy, we can find some common ground and we can get some things done. And I do think that with a majority in the Senate, we would be able to work with the House leadership to get a positive agenda and, and pass legislation. But to me, all of it needs to focus on jobs. And that is why, obviously, I think the uh, Affordable Care Act and repealing it and replacing it is so important. We need to replace it with policies that work, that do hold down skyrocketing premiums, that do <coughs> allow us to keep our insurance and doctors that we want. Uh, but I have worked in bipartisan fashion in the past and been able to get some things done and, and uh, believe I would be effective on day one and being able to do that in the Senate uh, should I be there, uh, you know, this time next year. Can you talk a little bit about your race and the state of play? And then also, I presume Senator Warner is going to try to run against the president and the party. Is that ever really effective? Well, uh, yes, I will. I'll be, I'll be careful because I've, I know that uh, this is not a, you know, I don't want to campaign here, but I'll answer your question in terms of the state of play, which I think that, you know, it's a, we have a great opportunity here. I, you know, I have advised a lot of people whether or not they should or shouldn't run for office, a lot of candidates or potential candidates. Believe me, I've never analyzed a race more closely than this one. Uh, <laughs> and we have a big uh, opening here and a big opportunity, and I believe uh, when you look at the map and everything, if we win here, we'll win control of the U.S. Senate for the last two years of President Obama's time in office, and that would have the most immediate impact we could have in terms of the direction of the country. That's why I wanted to, to do it. Uh, there's a great sense of momentum. I've been all around the Commonwealth. One of the things about campaigning in Virginia, it, you know, it's not, it's not as tiring, I think, as maybe in some other states. I won't mention those other states, but it is a beautiful, beautiful place. Everywhere you go, it's just beautiful. And there's so much history. You know, I was at William and Mary uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, you know, giants walked the land. Same here. The same here, whether it's the, the Revolutionary War, or the Civil War, or the founding, you know, and, and, and whether it's uh, the, the mountains out west or the, you know, the, the rivers and, and ocean. It's just so beautiful. So uh, I'm really enjoying it. And uh, I don't, I, I believe if you look, at the senator and his voting record, 97% of the time with President and Harry Reid, uh, you know, I suspect he's going to, you know, I don't think he can run from that, so I think he's going to have to defend it. Uh, but he may try, but it's awfully tough when you look at vote after vote after vote, including just this week on the DOJ confirmation. Yeah? For your time on the Hill, um, a couple of things maybe that you would learn, observe, that you would encourage 
council directors, ledge directors, um, things to do, maybe one or two things, and things that you've observed that you would say, avoid this or don't do this, maybe a couple lessons. Yeah. Well, a great question, and one of the things I think we have to always be conscious of and guard against is we tend to talk too much in process terms. And so, you know, just, and I try to be disciplined about it, that's why when I just spoke about our policies, I talked about more jobs, higher take-home pay, lower health care premiums, lower energy prices, putting $20 down. Most people, by the way, don't fill their tank when they buy gas. They put down a $20 bill or a $10 bill and they get as much as they can at that moment. We need to talk in those terms and understand that. We say repeal Obamacare. Great. Everyone in this room, great. Repeal Obamacare. That's a process argument. Approve the Keystone XL pipeline. Super process argument. Bringing down health care costs, allowing you to keep the doctor that you care about. Not just the doctor, pediatrician, the OBGYN, the internist that you rely on, that you have a relationship with. Keep your own insurance that you're comfortable with, you know. You know your, you know your co-pays, you know your deductibles, <coughs> you know your premiums. Keep that, you like it, you're comfortable with it. Get more for the $20 that you put down at the gas pump. We have to talk in terms that resonate with people in their everyday lives, and our policies make those lives better. But we too often talk in process, and, and we have to discipline ourselves and guard against that. We can't talk shorthand. <laughs> all the time. Shorthand's great with our base, but it doesn't resonate with those voters in the middle who are very concerned right now about the fact that they're working 28 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week for their wages because of these mandates and because of these regulations. Recent college graduates paying off student debt on four years worth of college loans are working at Macy's, waiting tables. It's work. It's honorable work. But it's not commensurate with the degree they they took these loans out to pay for. People living in their, in their parents' basements or in their old bedrooms from when they were kids at the age of 24, 25, they want to get out on their own. They're struggling. Their parents are struggling. I mentioned Dick Army, uh, who had a lot of sayings, some of which I can repeat. Uh, and one of them was, you know, the American dream is not just owning your own home, it's getting your children out of it. And as the father of a... <laughs> As the father of a 23-year-old, a 21-year-old, soon to be 18-year-old, I can relate to that even more today than when he said it you know, 20 years ago. Uh, but we need to talk in those terms, and uh, too often uh, we talk amongst ourselves uh, and, and process arguments. So that, that's one important thing, I think probably the most important thing from a communications perspective. Maybe one more? There's one more out there. If not, oh, any PJ? Advice, any advice for getting the message out on now with all these various forms of new media and cable news and um, there's just so much type of media, you know, what kind of things you guys would have done when you were in the House um, that you and Curtis did Well, a lot of has changed since then. I mean, when, when I was in the House, you know, one of the things we locked in early and, and uh, uh, you know, I have a, a kind of tooting my own horn, but I think I played a helpful role in was understanding the importance of talk radio. Uh, as a way for us to get the word out around some of the, you know, the mainstream media. Uh, now there's so many venues, so many ways for us to get the, to get the word out, and we need to take advantage of all of those. You know, to a certain extent, a congressional office, a campaign, an organization, is its own media outlet now. And, and you know, my goal is to have a list of people who get information from me that's bigger than the circulation of the Washington Post. 
I think I'll be able to do that. I think I'll be able to do that. Uh, that's pretty remarkable, and it's a good thing for those of us who have a conservative perspective to have the ability to have media outlets that share our point of view. Because for decades there were a lot of media outlets that were political organizations that did not share our point of view. So we can we can equalize and uh, and, and help offset that now with the uh, with the new media. So I think it is important. I think you know uh, Facebook and. Uh, Twitter and YouTube and Instagram all matter and they're a way for us to get information out there as well as talk radio uh, and the internet uh, very important but we have to you know we have to work overtime uh, to make sure that people have accurate information and you know I don't you know I, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I spent too much time dwelling on the nature of the media and and how we have to deal with it uh, but I always used to joke that I don't when I was a press secretary on the Hill, I don't believe in reincarnation, but if I did, I'd want to come back as a Democrat press secretary. That's a nice life, you know? <laughs> you say it, they write it, no follow-up question, great. So we have to work a little, a little bit harder, but, uh, but we can now in this new media environment get that information out. It's very important we do. Thank you all very much for what you do. Great